Blog Talk Radio. December 2015, 2018, I'm a little bit late here, and Chuck, breaking news. Spaceship 2 ready for space, I'm Bob Mark, Dateline December 14, 2018. The next test flight is a Virgin Atlantic Spaceship 2 from the Mojave Spaceport, California, could happen as soon as today or tomorrow, according to a statement from the company. The VSS utility is expected to carry its test pilot crew to the beginning of space. Overall, the goal of this flight is to fly higher, faster than previous flights. We plan to burn the rocket motors for longer than we've ever had in flight before, says Virgin Galactic. The flight should carry utility to the mesosphere where the thin air will allow the spacecraft to gain speed and altitude rapidly, where the pilots are expected to experience a near-zero-gravity flight for the first time. The mesosphere is the layer of the atmosphere that begins roughly 30 miles above the Earth's surface. Although some experts believe the flight could reach 50-mile point, the International Space Station currently orbits at 200 miles above the Earth. The flight will collect new and important data points about how the utility performs at higher altitudes and speed, including supersonic heading qualities and thermodynamics. Drunk pilot jailed for trying to fly from Heathrow while nine times over alcohol limits. John Sharman, Thursday, 29 November, 2018. A pilot has been jailed after he prepared to fly a passenger jet from Heathrow Airport while nine times over the alcohol limit. First Officer Katsutoshi Jitsukawa, 42, was jailed for 10 months at Isleworth Crown Court over the incident in October. He was arrested at the airport after he failed a breathalyzer test 50 minutes before the Japan Airlines JAL Flight JL-44 to Tokyo was due to take off with him in the cockpit. Judge Philip Matthews described the co-pilot as as, quote, very intoxicated, ahead of the 28th October flight. You are an experienced pilot, but you had clearly been drinking for a long period up to a time shortly before you were due to go into that plane, the judge said. 
The prospect of you taking over control of that aircraft is too appalling to contemplate, he said. Most important is the safety of all persons on board that very long-haul flight, potentially 12 hours or more. Planemaker Boeing is actively working on technology that would remove the need for two pilots in the cockpits of its passenger jets, as reported by Tom Batchelor for IndyWorks. Existing European aviation rules state the passenger planes with more than 19 seats must have a minimum of two pilots in the cockpit. But Steve Nordland, a vice president at Boeing, said autonomous technology that would allow for reduction in onboard crew was being developed at a good speed. He said Boeing believes in autonomous flight and self-piloted aircraft, and the firm's commercial aviation division was working on those technologies today. I don't think you'll see a pilotless aircraft of a 737 in the near future, he told the Independent. But what you may see is more automation and aiding in the cockpit, maybe a change in the crew number up in the cockpit. He suggested cargo jets could be the first to trial the technology, but that it made business sense to pursue a reduction in the number of onboard crew on passenger planes, too. A combination of safety, economics, and technology all have to converge, and I think we are starting to see that. It would also address a chronic shortage of pilots, which analysts have said could reach more than 200,000 over the next decade. Passenger notice a strange in-flight menu warning on British Airways flight. Bullet fragments that could be found in the mill. Maggie Parker, Yahoo Lifestyle, December 14, 2018. When a business class passenger looked over the in-flight menu, he noticed that one dish had a warning, like many do these days. British Airways has taken farms to table a little bit too far. Michael L. Brown noticed something strange in the in-flight menu and shared it on Twitter this week. The author and religion speaker was flying business class from London to Chicago on December 9th when he looked over the meal options and noticed one dish had a warning, like many do these days. But the warning wasn't about uncooked food or allergens. It was about bullets. It was for a dish called Home County's Vincent Stew. And the warning explained that due to the nature of the product, there's a very small risk of bullet fragments that could be found in this meal. I travel first class, he says, from Mumbai to Heathrow, and this item definitely wasn't on the menu, Brown told Sun. On my second flight from Heathrow to Chicago, I noticed this item on the menu. He pointed it out to the flight crew. The two flight attendants I spoke with had never seen or noticed this before, but had a good life out of it, he said. One joke with me that this warning could be so all of the Americans on board couldn't sue them. I told him he could well be right. He was dumbfounded, but his followers were not. According to them, this is quite common. Norma Jean? This report is from Yahoo News, December 12th. U.S. passenger plane has turned around mid-flight after finding a human heart on board that was meant to be delivered to a hospital. The Southwest Airlines flight had departed from Seattle and was en route to Dallas, Texas, when the heart was located. 
while the heart was likely needed for a transplant, it is not known exactly what purpose it served. The pilot and crew made the decision to turn around and ensure the organ was delivered to the hospital as quickly as possible. The crew on board the Southwest Airlines flight made the decision to turn back to Seattle, according to the Getty Files. We made the decision to return to Seattle as it was absolutely necessary to deliver the shipment to its destination, a spokesperson for Southwest Airlines told Q13 Fox News. Once flight 3606 landed in Seattle, mechanical difficulties forced the already late passengers to reboard to another plane, causing around a five-hour delay. We sincerely regret the inconvenience to the customers impacted by the delay, the spokesperson said. Nothing is more important to us than the safety of our customers and the safe delivery of the precious cargo that we transport every day. Hello, Eastern family. It's great having you with us this evening. My name is Jim Hart, coming to you live from the beautiful West Palm Beach area, where it's about a balmy 70 degrees right now, along with our other hosts at different locations. The weather may be more traditional at this time of year. Welcome, and thank you for listening and calling the show. You have truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. We'd love to hear your comments and share your memories with radio listeners from around the world during this broadcast this evening. If you haven't called the show before, all you knew, uh, do need to do is to call 213-816-1611 and just say, Hello! to talk with us on the air live. We can identify many countries around the world who listen in with our blog talk radio application. Isn't it great that we can keep the Eastern legacy going out to not only the Eastern family, but to listeners from many different countries around the world. That's why we try to do every week on the EAL radio show. Won't you join us by adding your voice to these broadcasts? Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on our homepage at www.ealradioshow.com or perhaps by signing in at the site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio, at www. Dot blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Should you wish to add your comments during our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number, 213-816-1611 at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Let me repeat that number 
so you can write it down for your Monday night visit. And by the way, tell your friends about us. That number, 213-816-1611. And don't forget, you can listen to any of our 395 Monday night broadcasts and the 75-plus Thursday broadcasts by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie and scrolling down to the archive of broadcasts. Each episode is briefly described. Our lines are always open for calls, and if you choose not to participate and talk live with your host, we ask that you please mute your phone as our producer does not have the capability of filtering out background noises. Let me ask our hosts to check in with their names, where they're calling from, and what the weather is like in their backyard today. Go ahead, please, host. Yeah, this is Chuck Albright. I'm calling you from the village of Florida. We're about 70 miles north of Orlando, where Disney World is. It's a balmy 55 degrees tonight. Uh, we have a lot of golf here, 53 golf courses, and they were packed full today. So we have a bunch of happy retired people. Back to you. Jim O'Dear calling you from, or rather talking from the Eastern Pilot Sun Club. It's about 20 miles north of Monticello, Georgia. The temperature here is 38 degrees, and we're glad to talk to you. This is this Jerry is Frost. For- Go ahead. This is Jerry Frost uh, calling from near Atlanta, Georgia, out here in uh, the sticks called Douglasville, Georgia. We're about 25 miles west of Atlanta. And we had a very sunny day today, temperature high, I believe, around 61 degrees. And uh, this is our winter. Go ahead, Norma. Uh, um, this is Norma Jean Borger from beautiful Wikiwachi. We're about an hour north of Tampa. The temperature is about 58. It was sunny today, but it was chilly, and you needed a more than a sweater. You needed a light jacket. And this is Carrie Holder calling from beautiful South Rockdale County, about 30 minutes east of Atlanta. And like Jerry said, it was a beautiful day today. Mike Scott, how are you? Mike Scott here on Smithtown, Long Island, about halfway out on the island. It's about 40 degrees now, partly cloudy, and uh, glad to be on the show. Is Shay Oakley with us? Hi, this is Gina Bain. I'm in Fort Lauderdale. Hi, Gina Bain. Hi. Very, Very good. Uh, you're in Fort Lauderdale. Good to have yes, you with us tonight. I'm, I'm a treasurer of the Fort Lauderdale Silver Liners, and I tuned in to listen to Beverly, our guest member. Well, we hope she's with us tonight. Beverly, are you with us? No, but uh, we do have some interviews that we'll be playing. And, uh, okay. Jim, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Uh, I think we've got uh, all of our hosts with us. So go ahead, Jim. Yeah, three hours on that. 
says. Jim Hart? Yeah. I'm I'm here, but Jim Holder is next. Oh, Jim Jim just checked in. He's with us. Go ahead, Jim Hart. <laughs> okay, Norma Jean, the flight was under the command of Captain Robert Albin. Bob Loft, a fifty five well, veteran pilot ranked fiftieth in seniority at Eastern. Captain hey, Loft. Uh, uh, yes. Jim, uh yeah, I think we've uh uh we're going to go ahead and get the airplane off the ground. And so if you could go ahead and uh uh give us the takeoff clearance. We'll Okay, now Mr. Producer, I see we are number one for takeoff. So let's get flight episode three nine or five in the air. Flight 401 was a scheduled flight from New York to Miami on December 29, 1972. The Lockheed L-1011 TriStar serving the flight crashed into the Florida Everglades, causing 101 fatalities. The pilots and the flight engineer, two of 10 flight attendants and 96 of 163 passengers died. Seventy-five passengers and crew survived. The crash occurred while the entire cockpit crew was preoccupied with a burnout landing gear indicator light. They failed to notice that the autopilot had inadvertently been disconnected and, as a result, the aircraft gradually lost altitude and crashed. It was the first, the very first crash of a wide-body aircraft and at the time, the second deadliest single aircraft disaster in the United States. 
uh, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was a regularly scheduled flight from JFK International Airport in Queens, New York, to Miami International Airport in Miami, Florida. On the day of the crash, Flight 401 was operated using a four-month-old Lockheed L-1011-1 TriStar. Registration number N310EA, which had been delivered to the airline on August 18, 1972. The aircraft was number 310 in Eastern's fleet and the 10th TriStar delivered to the carrier. Norma Jean, the flight was under the command of Captain Robert Alban Bob Loft. 55, a veteran pilot ranked 50th in seniority at Easton, had been with the airline for 32 years and had accumulated a total of 29,700 hours, flight hours, throughout his flying career. He had logged 280 hours on the 1011. His flight crew included First Officer Albert John Stockstill, who had 5,800 hours of flying experience, and Second Officer, really flight engineer, Donald Lewis Don Repo, age 51, who had 15,700 hours flying experience. A company employee, technical officer Angelo Donado, 47, was returning to Miami from an assignment in New York, accompanied the flight crew for the journey, but was officially an off-duty, non-revenue passenger. Uh, Jim? Flight 401 departed JFK Airport on Friday, December 29, 1972, at 21.20 Eastern Standard Time, carrying 163 passengers and 13 crew members on board. The flight was routine until 23.32 when the plane began its approach into Miami International Airport. After lowering the gear, stock still noticed that the landing gear indicator, a green identifier, a green identifying that the nose gear is properly locked in the down position had not illuminated. This was later discovered to be due to a burned-out light bulb. The landing gear could have been manually lowered nonetheless. The pilot cycled the landing gear but still failed to get the confirmation light. Jerry Luff um, was working radio during the leg of the flight. Told the tower that the would discontinue their approach to the airport and requested to enter a holding pattern. The approach controller cleared the flight to climb 2,000 feet, then hold west over the Everglades. Cockpit crew removed the light assembly. Second officer's repo was dispatched to the avionics bay below the flight deck to confirm via a small porthole if the landing gear was indeed down. Fifty seconds after reaching their assigned altitude, Captain Loft instructed First Officer Stockstill to put the L-1011 on autopilot. For the next 80 seconds, the plane maintained level flight. Then it dropped 100 feet. Then again flew level for two more minutes, and after which began to descend to gradually it could not be perceived by the crew. In the next 70 seconds, the plane lost only 250 feet but it was enough to trigger the altitude warning C-cord chime located under the engineer's station, workstation. Engineer Repo had gone below, so no indication was heard of the pilot's voices recorded on the CVR that they heard the chime. 
In another 50 seconds, the plane was at half its assigned altitude. The stock still started another turn into 180 degrees. He noticed the discrepancy. He followed the following conversation was recovered from the flight recorder later. We did something to the altitude. What? We're still at 2,000 feet, right? Hey, hey, what's happening here? Chuck, less than 10 seconds after this exchange, the jetliner crashed. The location was west northwest of Miami, 18.7 miles from the end of the runway, 9 left. The plane was traveling at 227 miles per hour when it hit the ground. With the aircraft in mid-turn, the left wingtip hit the surface first, then the left engine and the left landing gear, making three trails through the sawgrass, each five feet wide and more than 100 feet long. When the main part of the fuselage hit the ground, it continued to move through the grass and water, breaking up as it went. Miami Tower, during Eastern 401, just turned on final. Eastern 401 heavy, continue approach to 9 left. Let's continue approach, Roger. Now I'm going to try it down one more time. Eastern Flight 401 is on final approach to Miami International, runway 9 left. The nose landing gear indicator has failed to illuminate, so the crew cannot tell whether the gear is extended and locked. You want me to test the lights or not? Yeah, check it. Watch seat back. Uh, Doug, it could be light. Could you jiggle the light? It's got to come out a little and then snap in. Um, I'll put them on. Up to 2,000. You want me to fly, Doug? What frequency did he want us on? Uh, 28.6. I'll talk to him. All right, approach control Eastern 401. We're right over the airport here and climbing to 2,000 feet. In fact, we've just reached 2,000 feet, and we've got to get a green light on our nose gear. Eastern 401, Roger. Turn left, heading 360. Maintain 2,000. Vectors to 9 left final. Uh, left to 360. I think it's above the red one. Yeah, I can't get it from here. I can't make it pull out either. We got pressure? Yes, sir, all systems. Put the damn thing on autopilot. All right. See if you can put that light out. Now you got to push the switch just a little bit further forward. Now turn it to the right a little bit. No, I don't think it's going to fit. Hey, get down there and see if that damn nose wheel's down. Okay. You got a handkerchief or something so I can get a little better grip on this? Anything I can do with it? This damn thing just won't come out, Doug. If I had a pair of pliers, I could cushion it with that. Everyone is absorbed by the crisis, so they don't hear the audio alert announcing a change in altitude. Hell with this. Go down and see if that red line is lined up down there. Don't screw around with that 20 cent piece of light equipment. Eastern 401, I'll go out west just a little further if we can here and see if we can get this light to come on. All right. Uh, the autopilot has somehow become disengaged. The plane is slowly descending, and nobody is paying any attention to the altimeter. It's always something. We could have made schedule. Well, we can tell if the damn gear is down by uh, looking down at the indices. An emergency landing with a possible nose gear problem is neither very risky nor all that unusual. It's an option the captain could be preparing for now. It's got to be a faulty light. Doug, this damn thing just won't come out. All right, just leave it there. Eastern 401, how are things coming along out there? 
The controller's inquiry is too vague for the crew to realize he's asking about 401's surprisingly low altitude. Okay, uh, 180. Hey, we did some of the altitude here. What? Uh, we're still at 2,000, right? Hey, what's happening here? Norma Jean, Robert Bud Marquis, an airboat pilot, was out frog gigging with Ray Dickinson when they witnessed the crash. They rushed to rescue survivors. Marquis received burns to his face, arms, and legs, a result of spilled jet fuel from the crashed TriStar, but continued shuttling people in and out of the crash site that night and the next day. For his efforts, he received the Humanitarian Award from the National Air Disaster Alliance Foundation and the, quote, Alumni Tech Airboat Hero Award from the American Airboat Search and Rescue Association. In all, 75 survived the crash, 67 of the 163 passengers and 8 of the 10 flight attendants. Despite their own injuries, the surviving flight attendants were credited for helping other survivors and several quick-thinking actions, such as warning survivors of the danger of striking matches due to fuel in the swamp water and singing Christmas carols to keep up hope and draw the rescue, rescue team's attention as flashlights lights were not part of the standard equipment on commercial airlines at the time. Of the cockpit crew, only flight engineer Repo survived the initial crash along with technical officer Donadeo, who was down in the nose electronics bay with Repo at the time of impact. Stocksteel was killed on impact, while Captain Loft died in the wreckage of the flight deck before he could be transported to the hospital. Repo was evacuated to a hospital but later succumbed to his injuries. Donadeo, the lone survivor of the four flight deck occupants, recovered from his injury and died in 2004 at age 79. Carrie, most of the dead were passengers in the aircraft's midsection. The swamp absorbed much of the energy of the crash, lessening the impact on the aircraft. The mud of the Everglades may have blocked wounds sustained by the survivors, preventing them from bleeding to death. However, it also complicated the survivors' recuperation as organisms in the swamp caused infection with the potential for gas gang- gangrene. Eight passengers became infected, and the doctors used hypofluoric chambers to treat the infections. All the survivors were injured, 60 received serious injuries, and seven suffered minor injuries that did not require hospitalization. The most common injuries were fractures of the ribs, spines, pelvises, and lower extremities. Fourteen survivors had various degrees of burns. Jim, the NTSB investigation discovered that the autopilot had been inadvertently switched from altitude hold to control wheel steering, CWS, mode in pitch. In this mode, once the pilot releases pressure on the yoke control column, the autopilot maintains the pitch attitude selected by the pilot until he moves the yoke again. Investigators believe the autopilot switched modes when the captain accidentally leaned against the yoke while he turned to speak to the flight engineer who was sitting behind him and to the right of him. 
A slight forward pressure on the stick would have caused the aircraft to enter a slow descent maintained by the CWS system, control wheel systems. Investigation into the aircraft's autopilot showed that the force required to switch to the CWS mode was different between the A and the B channels, 15 versus 20 foot-pounds, respectively. Thus, switching to the CWS channel A possibly did not occur in channel B, thus depriving the first officer any indication the mode had been changed from channel A, which provides the captain's captain's instruments with data, while channel B provides the first officers. After descending 250 feet from the selected altitude of 2,000 feet, a C chord sounded in the rear speaker. This altitude alert designed to warn the pilots an inadvertent deviation from the selected altitude went unnoticed by the crew. Investigators believe that this was due to the crew being distracted by the nose gear light and because the flight engineer was not in his seat when it was sounded, so would not have been able to hear it. Visually, since it was at nighttime and the aircraft was flying over the darkened terrain of the Everglades, no ground lights or visual sign indicated the TriStar was slowly descending. Captain Loft was later was later found to have a undetected tumor in his uh, brain in the area which controls vision. However, the NTSB concluded that the captain's tumor did not contribute to the accident. Mike, the final NTSB report cited the cause of the crash as pilot error. Specifically, the failure of the flight crew to monitor the flight instruments during the final four minutes of flight and to detect an unexpected descent soon enough to prevent impact with the ground. Preoccupation with a malfunction of the nose landing gear position indicating system distracted the crew's attention from the instruments and allowed the descent to go unnoticed. In response to this tragic accident, many airlines started crew resource management training for their pilots. The training is designed to make problem-solving in a cockpit much more efficient, thus causing less distraction for the crew. Flashlights are now standard equipment near jump seats, and all jump seats are outfitted with shoulder harnesses. We found these interviews with some of the cabin crew survivors. I yeah. believe it was this, if I'm not mistaken. I was here. Yeah. This area here, yeah. right out here. Yeah. You know. I think I was the first one to go, basically. I don't know. I think when we hit, I think I, I ejected out pretty mm-hmm. quick. Yeah. You know. Yeah, but they, um, you know. Because it was really over the wing area, but I was in the middle section, mm-hmm. in the center. But you heard her but voice clearly. Oh, clear as a bell. Yeah, I don't remember that. I, have no. I don't remember water. I don't remember that. I, I had no con- concept of, you know, like people tell me, how about the uh, the alligators? <laughs> I have no idea about that. Them, that was know? the only, when you said that, I didn't think anybody else was alive. And so you said, and then I said, thank God it's somebody else alive. Yeah, because when I came to, you and I first clear. came to help, there oh, was yeah, no, there was clear. nothing, just dead silence. When you think I guess because that. my, you know, they, 
I was so hurt in my head that I, it it took a while to to the shock to wear off. You might have my concussion too. Who knows? Well, you were lucky in that you stayed sitting in your seat because you were still in your seat. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, most yeah, people were, in. and I was too, but a lot of people were not, and that's why, you know, people like Jan and all getting out and walking around, you know, and trying to find her son. Right. You know, yeah, I, there was a guy named Barry, and, yeah. Oh, fantastic. But, I think that that's an interesting point. That's an interesting point about having a, you know, dim the lights and like that. That that shock value. You heard the voices of uh, Ron Infantino, Beverly Raposa, and Mercedes Ruiz. Uh, are any of uh, you here with us tonight, Ron, Beverly, or Mercedes? Yes, yes I'm right here. Uh, who's who said yes? Ron Infantino. Hey Ron, Ron, thanks for being with yes. us tonight, and and uh, we found that on the internet. Would you like to add a few words to our program tonight? We'd like to hear from you, Ron. Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, it's about, about forty-six years now, forty-five, whatever. It, In is. A while. it seems like yesterday. It seems like yesterday, to be honest with you. It. Um, it never ends, to be honest with you. You know, it's an ongoing uh, recurrence in your, your, you know, your mind and your heart. And, you know, that's uh, losing my wife was the hardest part, you know. Yeah. Well, we've got that coming up here, a little bit more about that, Ron. Uh, do you guys meet, uh, do, you, do you have uh, meetings between the, the survivors uh, uh, over the years? No, it's basically me, Mercy, uh, Beverly, and Patty, and mm-hmm. um, we have some support people that help us out a lot too. We're we're working on a memorial, and we're working with the um, um, Miami Springs right now. That's the home of Eastern, as you know. Right. Uh, Curtis Mansion is out there, and um, as soon as the new year starts, um, we're meeting with the mayor, and uh, they're interested in, uh, in a location for us to put a memorial. Wonderful. And we already have the uh, groundwork, uh, the blueprints, and everything done by our architects. <clears throat> it's going to be really pretty, really nice. Well, we certainly like to be, keep uh, keep us informed about this. And if there's anything we can do on the radio show, Ron, don't hesitate to uh, give us a drop us a line or give me a call, and we'll do oh, what we sure. can to encourage uh, folks to. Uh, make donations to the foundation yes. and you do have a website. What's your website? Do you remember do you have that handy? Well we have the blog spot. Um I don't even use it, I'll be honest with you. Um okay. I'll send it to you. Okay, very good. Yeah. yeah, we'd like to uh keep in touch and uh because uh it's definitely needed there. And uh we're gonna turn it back over to Jerry Frost and Jerry, can you tell us a little bit more about this? be glad to. The story of the crash and its aftermath was documented first in John G. Fuller's 1976 book, The Ghost of Flight 401. Fuller recounts stories of paranormal events aboard other eastern aircraft and the belief that these were caused by equipment salvaged from the wreckage of Flight 401. Eastern Airlines CEO and former Apollo astronaut Frank Borman 
called the ghost stories surrounding the crash garbage. Eastern considered suing for libel based on assertions of a cover-up by Eastern executives, but Borman opted not to, feeling a lawsuit would merely provide more publicity for the book. Loft's widow and children did sue Fuller for infringement of Loft's right of publicity, for invasion of privacy, and for the intentional infliction of emotional distress, but the lawsuit was dismissed and the dismissal upheld by the Florida 4th District Court of Appeal. All parts that were cannibalized from Flight 401's airframe were eventually removed from other Eastern Airlines aircraft. The crash was also documented in Rob and Sarah Elder's 1977 book, Crash. Jerry, two made-for-television movies based on the crash were aired in 1978. Crash aired in October and was based on Elder's book and dramatized the crash rescue efforts of the NTSB investigation. The Ghost of Flight 401 aired earlier in February and was based on Fuller's book and focused more on the ground, on the ghost sightings and surrounding aftermath. The crash was featured on a season five of the Discovery Channel Canada slash National Geographic TV series Mayday Day in 2009, Series 5 episode called Fatal Distraction. Musician Bob Welch recorded a song in 1979 album called Three Hearts titled, uh, album Three Hearts titled The Ghost of Flight 401. And our own producer of the Eastern Airlines radio show, Captain Neil Holland, was interviewed by Robert Shatner on his Discovery Channel episode, Weird or, the, or What? Chuck? When launched, the Lockheed L-1011 TriStar was the most technically advanced wide-body commercial airliner ever. This aircraft made leaps forward in efficiency, comfort, and safety. Fifty years ago, the L-1011 even had the capability to land itself at certain airports in zero-visibility weather when other airplanes like the Boeing 747 would have to divert. Yet the L-1011 is the same aircraft that nearly bankrupt the company that built it. Lockheed incurred billions of dollars in losses on the L-1011 program, and only after sold half the Tri-Stars that it needed to break even financially. The L-1011 program got off to a rocky start. The Rolls-Royce was a manufactured, a new kind of highly efficient three-stage turbine fan engine to power the TriStar. But Rolls-Royce had difficulty developing its new engine. During the development of its RB211 turbofan, Rolls-Royce filed for bankruptcy. This created delays and uncertainties around the TriStar program. Norma G. The following was taken from an article appearing on the Internet titled, Eastern Airlines Flight 401, the story of the world's first crash of a jumbo jet, as told by the survivors. Together, the crew started the L-1011's engines. Outside, the off-lights blinked out, warning the ground crew that the airplane was about to come to life. Repo turned on the fuel pump. Turning number two, the pilot said as he depressed the start switch. Like a multi-million dollar pinball machine, the instruments winked awake with colored lights, first green, then amber, setting in motion a series of terse one- and two-word functions. Valve, open, push, oil, press, on, enrich. 
finally at 9.20 p.m., word came from the tower that it was Flight 401's turn to take off. Once on the runway, stock still released the brakes, applied thrust, and the aircraft 310 rolled forward, gathering speed down the runway for more than a mile. Loft rested his hands on the thrust levers with all the assurance of a man who had flown for 29,000 hours. As captain, he was the final authority as to whether to proceed or abort the takeoff. He decided, go. The white jet inched upward toward a night of stars, 185 tons of metal, kerosene, and humanity was airborne. Flight 401 flew south over Norfolk, Virginia, then followed Jet Airway 79 to Wilmington, North Carolina, and thereafter was over water. The flight would have normally passed east of Jacksonville, Florida, at a point 155 miles out to sea and passing a latitude along which lay, on the other side of the world, Cairo and Shanghai. However, on this night, air traffic control was able to release some airspace east of Jacksonville, vectoring all of MIA area flights, which includes Fort Lauderdale and Palm Beach. So they wound up west of Barracuda, an invisible navigation checkpoint over the ocean. A computer-stored flight plan would bring the Great White Whisper Liner inland over West Palm Beach and then south to Miami, a long dense galaxy of lights glittering on the north-south axis between two black voids, the Atlantic Ocean and the Everglades. The weather in Miami that winter, Friday night, was the main attraction to Flight 401's passengers. The National Weather Service had recorded the day's high temperature at 1.56 p.m. and again at 2.53 as a balmy 76 degrees. If the weather was the main attraction on that holiday weekend, it wasn't the only one. And Margaret was on stage at the Fountain Blue, Woody Allen at the Deauville. The King Orange Parade on New Year's Day, plus betting at the Greyhound Track and Highlight. For Joan and Jerry Esco, the trip was a last-minute arrangement a response to the coaxing of their friends who would be celebrating New Year's Eve on a mutual friend's yacht. There was, however, a complication. Jerry's business, Yale Express Systems, was in the throes of bankruptcy and legal trouble. Jerry didn't want to be away from New York for too long, so he said that Joan, his wife, should go ahead. She initially balked at the idea, but Jerry used one of her own arguments to convince her. He said, Remembering the pact that you wanted us to make about flying separately? It had always worked word her that if something should happen to them both, who would take care of her girls? There was a certain irony in Jerry's reviving that thought. Always before, he had laughed at her concern. She flew out on Flight 401 on Thursday, and Jerry would follow 24 hours later on Friday night's Flight 401. For Cuban-born Lily Infantino and her new American husband, Ronald, the trip was a chance to spend a traditional Cuban holiday celebration with her family in Miami. Lily and Ron had just married on December 9th, and after a brief honeymoon in Disney World, they had flown to New York to spend Christmas 
with Ron's parents. But after speaking to her family in Miami and hearing the account of the planned New Year's Eve festivities, they decided to catch Flight 401 to Miami. Even though the flight was scheduled to arrive at 1142 in Little Havana, that was not considered a late hour. Lily's sister, Kathy, would later explain that Ron and Lily originally selected another flight, but later changed it to Flight 401. Somewhere over Wilmington, Lily went to the bathroom at the rear of the plane. She had been sitting next to the center divider with her husband, Ron, at the aisle. When she returned, they exchanged places. I'd rather sit here anyway, she said. At the time, it seemed a decision of no consequence. Eastern's uniforms in the winter of 1972 were dark brown, beige, and powder blue. Flight attendants had the option of wearing skirts, slacks, or shorts with boots that zipped nearly to the knee. The senior flight attendant on Flight 401 wore blue shorts with the brown boots. Her name was Adrienne Hamilton, a slender, serious Texan who 19 days earlier had begun her fifth year flying with Eastern. She was 27 years old. That day's trip was known as a stuffer, a quick turnaround Miami to New York and back to Miami. The crew had checked into Eastern's in-flight office at Miami International at 3.35 p.m., and by 11.50 p.m., they were scheduled to be off-duty. From Miami to New York, the 10 women flight attendants in the crew flew on Flight 26, a dinner flight. At JFK, they changed airplanes to work Flight 401. Flight 26 arrived into JFK late, and Adrian and her crew had only 23 minutes to get from one plane to another. They almost missed Flight 401. One member of the regular crew, stewardess Irene Pratt, arrived at the airport to discover she had exceeded her quota of flying hours for the month. When I arrived at the airport, they told me there was no need for me that day, she said. So she had had been replaced by another Eastern flight attendant, Sharon Transu. Because it was the end of the month, the crew would be breaking up soon. This is going to be our last trip together, a black-haired stewardess, Mercedes Reese, told the others. She had brought a camera to preserve the memories of the good times the crew had had with each other. Sharon Transu, the replacement crew member, didn't feel part of the team and offered to take the picture of the group. For the photograph, the team of flight attendants had gathered at the tail of the plane. Patricia George lay atop one of the L-1011's coat closets, and the others stood in a row just below. The photograph was taken aboard Flight 26, the day of the crash. Mercy's camera would later survive the crash, and this remarkable photo was developed. Sadly, for Patricia Geisels and Stephanie Stanich, it would be the last time they were photographed alive. Among the passengers, the very size of the L-1011 imposed amenities. On Flight 401, an unexpected factor made it seem even larger than it was, especially during the holidays. Night coaches to Miami were usually filled up. This flight had been booked solid, but eventually some people had made last-minute plans, and even with 160 passengers on board, the doors closed. 
68 empty seats remained. And so they sat, strangers, some alone, some in pairs. A woman with salt and pepper hair wrote a knit dress with a gold frog on her belt. Her name was Evelyn D. Salazar. She managed the Manhattan Art Gallery. A small box tucked under her seat was her constant companion, her little white poodle, Hina. Mark Lindsay, 21, a University of Miami student, headed back to class after the holidays. Ethel Jackson, 64, a housekeeper from Liberty City, brought her white uniform in the carry-on bag. Rose Kirschman, 57, New York, sporting a mink coat. All would be dead within a few hours. And Rose, 66, Gustavo and Xmira Casando were flying to Miami to to show relatives their new baby girl, two-month-old Christina, slept in her mother's arms wearing a pink dress. Jim? Gerard Solomon, 24, was a nervous smoker who still managed to make his Pacateritans last two days. He had purchased a non-smoking ticket, but while on board found a seat in the last row reserved for smokers. It was a window seat on the right side just forward of the wing. Despite that this was a pleasure trip, he was going to Miami to see a girlfriend and visit a former college roommate. He sat down and went right to work. He was a buyer for gimbals. I always knew retailing was what I wanted. I got right into it out of school, and I was pretty successful, and I got a nice salary. For a brief time, until a friend got promoted, he was the youngest buyer at gimbals. His goal in life, he would say later, was to, quote, be successful financially and live a nice, easy, comfortable life. To that end, he had bought a computer printout on his trip to Miami. I was rotating stock to not be sitting in the store, not selling. Jerry wore a gold star of David his mother had bought him a few weeks earlier while in Israel. It was funny. She knew I didn't want to wear anything around my neck. All I wanted was a chain, and she said I brought I bought this star. You, If you want it, wear it, fine. If you want to hold it for your children, fine. And I said, Mom, if it will make you happy, I will, uh, will wear it. Joseph Popson was a tired but happy soon-to-be Ph.D. in English, returning to Florida from attending the Modern Language Association Conference in New York. He settled in for the journey, digging into his paperback of The Exorcist. Jerry. Quietly during the flight, Edward Ulrich proposed to Sandra Burt. She accepted. He was 44, fair-haired and balding, a big man who used to play college football. She was 32 and as slight as he was large. They both lived in Seymour, Connecticut, where he was a salesman for a copper company and she was a secretary in a bank. I thought you'd like to see this he said, reaching into his pocket and producing a diamond ring. She looked at the ring, smiled, and said, Thank you. They laughed and drank a champagne cocktail. It was ironic that the flight had more than five dozen empty seats, for when they booked, they were told that only seats available were in first class. Bert bought the tickets anyway. He and Sandra boarded the plane early and sat near the front in seats 4A and 4B. Directly ahead of them, 
were a row of seats in the first-class lounge, where there were several additional empty seats and a buffet of cheese and crackers. To the right were more empty seats, and behind them an airplane carrying 176 people. Yet Ed and Sandra were very much alone. In first class, a blonde young woman rose from her seat and introduced herself to the passengers. She was Jennifer Larson, an in-flight executive representative for Eastern Airlines. She explained that she would be happy to help any passengers with reticketing for return trips. When she finished her announcement, Jerry Esco called her over. On the back of an envelope, he wrote the following letter to Samuel L. Higginbottom, who was then the president and COO of Eastern Airlines. Dear Mr. Higginbottom, this is my first time on an L-1011, and I love the trip. The ride is smooth. The service is excellent. The plane is beautiful. The pilots are terrific. And I want to particularly compliment your stewardess, Jennifer Lawson. She thanked him, and Echo put the envelope in his pocket jack for later delivery. He began to doze as the seatbelt was lighted and a voice came from the cockpit. Welcome to sunny Miami. The temperature's in the low 70s, and it's beautiful out there tonight. Much of the content herein is copyrighted to Rod, uh, Rob and Sarah Elder from the book Crash, 1977, Athenium, New York, and uh, and used with permission of the authors. Recent accolades, I could only wish I, that I had been able to access your website when I was writing the chapter concerned for my air disaster volume, MacArthur Job. She cited uh, referenced in recent articles in the Sun Centennial, the Miami Herald, and the St. Petersburg Times. And we'd like to end our program with this tribute, uh, a beautiful song that uh, was uh, sung by is sung by John Denver. Thank you. 
song is dedicated to the survivors and those that lost their lives on Eastern Airlines Flight 401. That's our tribute tonight. I'd like to take this time to read uh, some of the countries that listen to us uh, all over the world. It's very interesting that we do have uh, a data that we can uh, go to each week and find those that have listened to us during the last show. So last week's show, we had listeners from Australia, Indonesia, Thailand, India, Pakistan, China, Japan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Turkey, Romania, Hungary, Belarus, Sweden, Norway, United Kingdom, Germany, France, Spain, Nigeria, Ghana, Argentina, Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, Mexico, the United States, of course, and Canada. 29 countries around the world listened in last week. I think we ought to start saying, hello, world, and Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and Happy New Year from Eastern Airlines International Radio Show. That's what we've become. Just a few uh, emails that I've received here recently when we put the uh, show promotion on Facebook from Mike Van Winkle. He said, we lived right off the Tamiami Trail, Highway 441, and I remember that night so clear. Dad was flying an eastern trip. I found our out a different flight. Bless those that lost their life and family members. Marianne Bingham, uh, Surabana, 46th anniversary and still no memorial. That is just sad, and it really is sad. And perhaps this year, maybe something can be done about that. Diana Smith, it is fresh. My captain, I assume she's talking about someone close to her. Flew with the co-pilot and the flight engineer was my neighbor. This was a terrible thing, she said. Judith Ann Ware Kelly, my hubby and I were flying into Miami that night and landed just after 401 went down. And we have uh, another one from Jim Durden, uh, Durden. He said, around 1999, I was in Crystal River, Florida, diving. And while I was resting on the boat, a small John boat pulled pulled up asking where the three sisters' spring was. 
I told I told them it was right behind us, and if they wanted, they could uh, tie the boat their boat to ours, and I would watch it while they went in. I asked them where they were from, and all they said uh, they all said Miami. I responded that I had worked for Eastern Airlines and trained in Miami all the time. One girl spoke up and said, "Do you remember the plane crash in the Glades?" Yes, I do. I was working that night in Atlanta and remember it very well. At that time, she said, do you remember there were two infants that survived the crash? Well, I'm one of them. Wow. She went on to explain she was on her graduation trip from Harvard Law School, paid for by money, paid out of the crash, by the crash. So that's our email and that's uh, pretty much our show, and uh, let's see, we have some others. Uh, any response from our listeners? We have our board lit up tonight. I'd like to open all the microphones up, and if you have any comments that you'd like to share with us, please do so. Um, we have uh, uh, Ron. I think you're still with us. Ron, are you still with us? Yes, yes I'm here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh We were glad to do this tonight. We're so close to the date of the tragic accident, or the uh, crash in the Everglades, the 29th of December, that uh, we decided to put uh, this uh, show together for the occasion. And and, um, uh, all of our cast of the host did a wonderful job tonight. Thank you very much for participating. Any comments you'd like to make? Just a side note here, uh, Captain Neal, uh, it's Mike. Uh, that there was that uh, today's the 115th anniversary uh, of the Wright brothers' first flight. So, uh, just wow. a, just a side note. <laughs> Glad you brought that up, Captain Neal. It's Brenda from uh, hey, Brenda. Canada. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Thanks yeah, for being I, with us tonight. Oh, listen, I've wanted to for weeks, and I kept missing it. So I'm so glad I caught it tonight. But that was a wonderful show, and it is a tribute. And uh, I've seen those pictures of the girls, you know, and it just uh, oh, yeah. touches me greatly yeah. still. Yeah. So, and, uh, well, know, we want to we, we do what we can this coming year, and perhaps, uh, you know, this can come together. And Ron's doing a great deal out there meeting uh, with the officials over in um, the Miami Springs area. Ron, I got a question for you. Yes, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about where are they thinking about placing this uh, plaque or monument or whatever? Yeah, there's. I don't know if you've ever been in Miami Springs. Have you ever been there? Sure. Yeah, many times. Okay. You, you know, you notice all the all the memorials on the middle, like the mid Springs and the main road, in yeah. the center. Right. Either there or right near Curtis Mansion. That's where Eastern uh, they trained the flight attendants. Oh yeah, yeah the villas, yeah, yeah, uh, and the yeah. pool, you know, in the back, that little pond in the back, right, the Curtis Mansion. Well, that's where they practice ditching the flight attendants. Exactly. Not many people yeah. know that. Yeah, we had a show yeah. about that, as a matter of fact, here yeah. this year earlier. And this, they, they uh, used to stay there. The flight attendants they had a. Rooms that had like apartments there, they're torn right. down now, but right over there, they, that's where they stayed at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, 
Uh, hope but when I it, what I'm going to do is this though. When I meet when I meet, it'll be maybe hopefully in another within a month with the mayor of Miami Springs. Yeah. Um, and as soon as I get the blessing that we're, see the reason why we can't raise money now is because we don't have a place to put the memorial. Nobody's going to give money unless we have a, a space. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. For donations. So yeah. once I get that, you know, in writing. Right here, they agree this is what the memorial is going to be. Then we can start raising money for the memorial. You know? So, that's Didn't what we need to do. Didn't Air put up a memorial for the crash of, in the Glacier? Yeah, it's Air in the, it's in the they, they did. Nobody can find it. I've yeah, been there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nobody goes there. You don't even know it's yeah. there. You know? There's no exactly. good at all. Excuse me. Were you talking yes. about Curtis Parkway or Westward Drive? Yeah. Yeah, um, Curtis Parkway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I live. <clears throat> I lived there for 13 years. So, yeah. Uh, at in Miami Springs. Yeah, it's got to be a place where it's going to be protected. You know, government of vandalism yeah. or anything like that. You know. Mm-hmm. What about in front okay. of that country club? Yeah. 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 That'd be great. I know exactly what you mean. You know, there's right always there. somebody there, you know. Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. enough people playing golf and running in and out. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Is that there any reference? Choice. Is there any reference in the uh, about the uh, the 401 in the Miami Historical Museum that uh, Dorothy the head recently got the? Yeah, uh, we had a yeah um, we had Mercy suitcase there. Um, okay. On display and what have you, that had the camera in it. Matter of fact, I okay. have a suitcase. <laughs> she, I've had it for years, actually. Very good. Um, you Very know, good. but um, and there's pieces of wreckage still out there that once we could get a, a, a resting spot, we'll see if we can get some help from the Coast Guard or whatever. Because we'll need a helicopter hoist to get lift, lift it out. You know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, well, yeah, I've seen it with my own eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Looks like a question. Just running out there. Isn't there a plaque or something out at the crash site? No. Mm-hmm. No. No. The, the 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 only thing they have out there is by the um, the value the um, air train the value what is the value jet right yeah value jet value, value jet, jet yeah, yeah that's right yeah yeah yeah. And um, it's it's amazing because when you look at the value jet, I don't know if you ever seen the memorial, it it points like an arrow, you know, towards the Everglades. And our crash and value jet was the same longitude and latitude. Wow. Only two miles, I think, difference. That's the only thing. It was same same location wow. basically. Yeah. Now, which Brenda do we have on the air tonight with us? Brenda Shabul. Okay. Is that what you just said? That's asked? what I yeah. thought. Now, you wrote yeah. the book uh, that you made That's reference right. in that book, of course. Yeah. What book was this? Yeah, I did. Uh, Flight okay. Attendants Lost in the Line of Duty. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I bought your book. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you like it. It just um, it amazes me the number of people in the industry who know someone personally who's lost their life in the line of duty. 
It amazes me. Hmm. It's not that small an industry, you know? Yeah. I mean, in the yeah. Silver Liners, when I first went down, uh, Barbara Bailey, she roomed with one of the girls um, that was actually in the Sioux City, Iowa, DC-10 crash. The lady that I roomed with in the Silver Liners, um, the girl that she roomed with in training lost her life in 401. Um, I learned that the airline I flew for, Ward Air, in writing this book, that one of the early flight attendants, a Dutch girl from Edmonton, had quit Ward Air and moved back to Holland and was hired by KLM. She died in the Tenerife crash Mm. of the two 747s working the flight. And then, of course, I lost six of my own that I'd hired and trained in that horrific Jetta crash. So, you know, there's... And that's just a few. There's so many more. So, yeah, they, to me, again, it really, really touches me to, you know, think of 401 and that night and the innocence. Do you know what I mean? The innocence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, uh, Could you mention the, the title of the book again, Brenda, so Ron might uh, jot it down. I think he might yeah. be interested in reading it. Sure. It's called Flight Attendants Lost. In the Line of Duty by Brenda Chabot. That's C-H-A-B-O-T. In the 401 um, accident, I read for the research for the book the um, accident report. And it bothered me, which I mention in the book, that they don't name the flight attendants who lost their life. Who They don't talk a lot about who, um, what the girls did out there in that dark night and how brave they were and how young they were, it kills me. And it, it, really, is, um, it really is unfortunate that I could picture where the ones who lost their life were sitting based on reading how the airplane went down. And yet nowhere in accident reports do they identify she was sitting at 3L, she was 3R, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think yeah. they should. Um, yeah. That's just personally. I, I, The book is about wanting to know them as people. And again, mm. how firefighters or police, and God bless them, but how they are honored and so their parents, their loved ones can feel that pride in what they did flicked and its parents or loved ones don't get that they don't get it at all their people are anonymous uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know so i'm hoping yeah. that through the book and that sort of stuff but no 401 definitely touched me definitely well, it's a beautiful big plane <laughs> well thanks most people for... don't know this but but prior to my getting married um because mm-hmm. i just got out of the air force in 1970 and I applied for Eastern Airlines and moved down to Miami because I wanted to work for Eastern. Yeah. And I applied for it, put my application in there like this. And then um, I got married on December 9th. And, um, of course, the accident happened December 29th. Wow. And when I was in the hospital, I, my mother checked the mail, and I had a uh, – the mail was for me to come in for a job interview. Wow. And most people don't know that. And I said, I can't believe this. I said, I can't even walk yet, let alone going for a job interview. And I called oh. Eastern Airlines up, and I spoke to HR, and HR was, like, dumbfounded. I could hear his jaw drop to the ground. They had no idea it was the same person, you know what I mean? 
Yeah. yeah. Wow. So um, they asked me if it would be all right if they came in to interview me in the hospital. I had a human resource for Eastern Airlines and his assistant come for two hours and talk to me at Hialeah Hospital for a job. That's, that sounds like and Eastern they, Airlines. And they told me, you got oh, it if you want it. <laughs> Could you oh. imagine that? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. How about that? Isn't that amazing? Full yeah, it is amazing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. This show well, is wonderful, you know. It really is. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, sometimes it. Uh, well, what can you say? Uh, it, it it really touches us. Eastern Airlines is our life. Those that uh, work for I Eastern, know. and and uh, a lot of folks that just simply flew Eastern, and a lot of folks did fly Eastern, and that's yep. why we uh, uh, we we enjoy putting on the show. And people coming back, our hosts come back every Monday, and and um, we put on something a little bit different. We try to it's, keep the interest yeah, it's there, wonderful. but apparently we yeah. do have the interest because uh, we have so many yeah. countries around the world that are Isn't listening. That you know, it That's might be wonderful. one person in China, it might be it doesn't uh, matter one person there, <laughs> but at least uh, Eastern Airlines is uh, going around the world via the EAL radio show. So Mike just changed the title to Eastern Airlines International Radio Show. I think that's more appropriate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, oh, it's uh, practice. Okay. Well, so, I did but, training. Uh, I was doing now, Sorry, you go ahead. Ne- yeah, ne- next, uh, we're just about out of time, but next Sunday, Art Correction, next Monday, which is Christmas okay. Eve, I yeah. will be playing Christmas music. By myself, Aww. and uh, the host won't be around. I'll just select some Christmas music that we did last year, different music, of course, and play a little bit to uh, entertain anyone that wants to dial in EAL Radio Show or blogtalkradio.com and enjoy some Christmas music at Christmas Eve, and uh, uh-huh. they're with their family and enjoy it. So uh, the radio show would like to... Uh, say we wish everyone a wonderful, wonderful uh, holiday coming up and and uh, also take time to remember what the purpose of the holiday is for and also yes. a new year coming up. We wish everyone yeah. success, health and happiness through the next uh, coming new year. Thank you so and much for being here. All of you. And, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be I'll be in contact with you, Captain. Okay. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. I'll be in contact with you when we uh, meet with the mayor. All right. Very good. And thanks for being thank with us. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Nice talking. I want to hear too, Neil. Okay. If there's okay. a place where um, it can be donated, or you know how people could get in touch. Yes. Right. <clears throat> yes, I'm gonna. So we'll I'll, get Dorothy I'll, I'll get all that information to you guys. Yes. And as soon as Dorothy moves into our new digs in uh, the village area. We'll get her to put it on the, the uh, website which, which for us. Which village do you live at? Which village is it? Well, Dorothy and Don, her husband, live in uh, the villages. They just moved from Boynton Beach. Uh, but down there's, there where there's, Jim two, Hart there's two lives. villages. One's in Citrus County and the other one is no, in Sumter. No, it's in Sumter County. It's called the Villages, oh. Florida. Okay. It's uh, 70 miles north of yeah. Orlando. Yes, because okay. I'm thinking about going to the one, the Citrus, the other the other villages. It's in Citrus County. 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's near, it's near you know, like Ocala area, that area in there. Yeah. Okay. We're down. We're, yeah. yeah. We're a little bit south of Ocala. Right. Well, maybe that's it then. You know, there's two <laughs> villages. One's in Citrus, and the other one's in um, Sumter. Uh, uh, Sumter, Sumter County. Which one are you at? I'm in Sumter. Sumter. Okay, you're in Sumter. Yeah, I'm thinking about going to the Citrus. Matter of fact, I'm going to go there in about another week to look at the homes. Yeah. In fact, the okay. village takes up three quarters of Sumter County. Yeah, I know. I know it does. I know. Well, I'm going to put this aircraft on the ground. Okay, so. I'm sorry. You're going to put the aircraft. All right, down. hang okay. on. Right. Fasten your seatbelt. Merry Christmas. Bye bye. Merry Christmas, bye-bye. everyone. Thank you. Take care. Great landing, Captain, as usual. Be sure to tune in again next Monday, December 24, when America's favorite way to fly plays holiday season music with yours truly, Captain Neil Holland. That's our show for tonight, folks. With this, we take a line from the stories from Lake Wobegon, where all the Eastern women are unequaled, all the Eastern flight attendants are above airline standards, all the men are good-looking, and all the Eastern children and Eastern grandchildren are way above average. Until then, we're going to say good night, everyone. Good night, Eastern family. We love you, Eastern. Good night, night, Eastern. We'll be looking forward to the Eastern Yule Lodge. Good night from Georgia. Okay. Great show, guys. Thanks so much. Wonderful. Wonderful holiday coming.